Now, for those that don't know me, like Dave said, I'm, I'm Rob Frank. And uh, Stuart has asked that uh, Dave and I kind of fill in for him as he takes care of the things that are really important. Uh, pastor has been teaching a series called It's Personable. It's personal. It's about conducting our lives, our ministries, and our relationships in such a way that we make a personal and profound impact on others, particularly the young people that we're here to serve. Now, uh, Pastor Stewart and Pastor Sheila are taking care of their parents. They are making it personal. They are an example of what we can be and what we can do when we make it personal. They are modeling what it is to live into the conformity of Christ. I give thanks to the Almighty God to have pastors like that in my life that I can look to as a model. And I certainly stand with them in prayer and what they're going through. Now, uh, today Dave and I are going to be discussing uh, the concept, do you know what I've done? And the way that we're going to break it up is I'm going to kind of lay out the concept and then Dave's going to provide some context and some illustration. Now, I was blessed this past uh, Friday to go to uh, Winter Jam. And Winter Jam is a big uh, contemporary Christian concert. But really what it is, is it's a worship service with thousands and thousands of people. And I was blessed to go up there with Pastor Steve and with uh, Lori Fisher and Dr. Rodney Fisher and Abby, and Sean Lindsay, and we were accompanying a group of uh, young people there. And 17 of us gathered at the church at noon uh, on Friday, and 18 of us returned at about 2 o'clock Saturday morning. We somehow managed to collect another kid on the way, so uh, that was a good thing. Now, there were three things that I noted from this trip. Uh, the first was the absolute diversity and just incredible talent of Christian musicians. The acts encompass the whole range from just solo vocalists to knock down, drag out, rock and roll party in the streets kind of headbanging Christian music. I tried to talk Steve into playing Red for praise and worship, but he wouldn't do that. So uh, for those of you who know the band Red, you, you, you really get how funny that is. Maybe Sean Lindsay can help me talk him into it. The second thing I noticed was how ill-prepared I was for dealing with a group of teens. And I really respect like Sam and Peugeot and Steve who are you know, professional youth ministers who serve these young people week in and week out. Now in my own defense, I think I was betrayed by my military family upbringing. You see, everything in my house growing up ran on a schedule. And if you were 10 minutes early, you were 10 minutes late. And uh, that's kind of the way it works. So I did the same thing on this trip. And I scheduled everything out. And I went so far as to schedule a rest stop so that everybody could get out and have a break on the way up there. In true to military form, I made it a very, very, very liberal 12-minute rest stop. A 12-minute rest stop for 14 teenagers at a place where there's a Starbucks. 
At 29 minutes, I was pulling my hair out. At about 35 minutes, I think Steve wanted to lock me in the trunk. And in about 40 minutes, I was resigned that we'd get there when we get there. But the third thing I learned was perhaps the most important. It was the reaction of two of the young women who were with us, Maya and Layla, uh, to the message of a recording artist named Riley Clemens. And Riley is a, just an incredible female vocalist with a flawless voice. And she did her own set, but she also sang in with a, a, a number of acts. You know, her, she did uh, Come As You Are with Crowder. I gotta tell you, it was incredible. Especially when everybody, thousands of people started singing it as well. Well, and like all artists, Ms. Clemens has a booth where she sells uh, t-shirts and CDs and, and kind of her swag. And one of the things that she sells is hoodies. And my daughter ran up to me and says, you know, me and Layla want to buy some hoodies. Can we buy some hoodies? And I looked at them, and they were lavender. And anybody who knows my daughter knows if it isn't black, she doesn't wear it. And she, here she is asking me to buy her a lavender hoodie. And I'm saying to myself, well, what's behind this? This is odd. And then I looked a little bit closer. In small print, not like that, on the front of the shirt were two words. And they were in larger print on the back. And those two words were, you matter. You matter. There's no more powerful message that we can give to our kids than this. There is no more powerful two words that we can say. You matter. This is the message that we should be giving to each other. You matter. It's what your pastors are saying to their parents as they spend this time with them. You matter. That's really the message behind the It's Personal series. The series is devoted to developing our ability to live out the concept, you matter, in the lives of others in a way that touches and inspires them in the knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the part we're talking about today, do you know what I've done, is part four of a four-part, five-part series. So before I begin, I'm just going to very quickly go through the, uh, uh, the foundations that we've been through so far. Lesson one was, do you know my name? Learning someone's name is the first step in being personal. It matters if you say someone's name, it matters how you say someone's name, and it matters how often you say someone's name. Everybody, but especially kids and teens, are wondering, is there anybody out there who will acknowledge me, connect with me, interact with me, remember me? They want to know if there's anybody out there who will say to them, you matter. When you know someone's name, you model honor. You give someone the hope that they are worth remembering. You let them know that they matter. The second lesson in the series is, do you know what matters to me? If you want to connect with someone, you have to take the time to understand what matters to them. And in order to do that, you have to understand why it matters. The shift from the impersonal to the personal comes when you become interested in something that interests someone else. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes intention. You've got to practice it. When you slow down, 
when you take the time to pause and show interest, you change something in that person's future. You show them that they matter. And that gives rise to hope. And hope is unfortunately too often missing in our world. When you know what matters to a person, you model friendship. And you say to someone, you matter. Last week was the third lesson, do you know where I live? Something changes in a relationship when you take the time to understand someone's circumstances and contexts. When you enter into their world and know what will impact and affect them. When you take time to know a person's culture or how they live emotionally, the burdens that they carry or the challenges that they face, the support or the lack of support they have in their home. When you know where someone lives, you know their context and circumstance, you can model empathy. You know how they feel and they know that they matter. Now today's lesson is, do you know what I've done? When you know the answer to the question, do you know what I've done, you model love. In modeling love, you give someone hope that they are worth forgiving. And that's really the end-all and be-all of this lesson, if you want to summarize it. When you know what someone has done, you have an opportunity to love them, and love them in such a way that they have hope to know that they are worth forgiving. You'd be surprised how many people believe that they're not worth forgiving, or that what they have done is unforgivable. And that's a lie. And we can't let that lie stand. And the way that we stand against that lie is we let them know you matter. We let them know that even though we know what they've done, they have hope for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is probably the toughest lesson so far. It's the most personal. It requires the most trust, and it's the most fragile. It's the most susceptible to the confounding effects of improper motive and religiosity. It's the lesson that requires the greatest restraint and the greatest humbleness of heart. There are some pretty dark things that can happen in a child's life. These can range uh, from issues of abandonment and abuse, drug and alcohol use, uh, and dependence either within the home or they themselves. The position in an unforgiving social structure. Do you all remember how hard it was in junior high school when I went? Now it's middle school. But that's a tough time. The issues can be academic or athletic performance expectations. Then there are issues of sexuality and pregnancy and even abortion. Often the things that make up the do you know what I've done conversation can't even be discussed in a small group. They're too personal. They're too impactful. They require the types of relationships that take time to build. It is a challenge and a gift when a person comes to you with the, do you know what I've done? When they give to you, do you know what I've done? It's a burden to you and it's a blessing to you. And it allows you to really show up in someone's life. Now, when you show up consistently over time, enough to know a child's name and his or her interests and the context and circumstances in which they live, you become personal. And when you become personal in this way, you cultivate trust. Trust is powerful and fragile, 
especially once somebody tells you what they've done. When they confess to you the deepest and darkest aspects of their conduct and their fears, they are sharing with you their greatest vulnerabilities. When someone trusts their fears and their vulnerabilities to you, when they tell you, this is what I have done, the worst thing that you can do, the worst thing you can do, is to betray their trust by responding in a shallow way. You can't respond to this conversation with rules and have-tos and checklists. You can't respond to this conversation by admonishing or instructing. You can't be trying to fix the behavior. All of these things are counterproductive. For most of us, and for the young people in particular, trusting someone is scary. And the last thing you want when you're facing that fear and that vulnerability is a lecture. You see, everyone's greatest fear is to be found out, to have others know that they're a fraud. I fight this all the time. To have others know that they're an addict or a cheater or whatever label they may be given by society or their peers or even themselves. This is particularly a concern for young people whose self-image and self-confidence is not yet formed. When they're very wrapped up emotionally and psychologically in the opinions of their peers. The fear of being found out causes people, young people in particular, to collapse two separate and distinct concepts into one. When we are afraid of being found out, when we are in the midst of our vulnerabilities, we collapse, I did, with I am. We become unable to separate our fundamental view of who we are from what it is that we have done. Adults, and even kids, do this all the time when they identify themselves with their sins. When you say, I am an addict, or I am an alcoholic, you are identifying with your sin, you are labeling yourself. You are focusing on what you did. You are collapsing it with who you are. When you say, I am a man who struggles with addiction, you are focusing on the I am, not the I did. Sometimes we all, and especially kids, we, we even go a step further. And we begin to identify ourselves not only based on our own sins, but on somebody else's sins. I was abandoned by my father, so I am worthless. My parents divorced. It is my fault. And here's the most painful one that I think I hear. My mother got cancer. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and she still died. God hates me. Or worse yet, there is no God. We let the I dids of someone else, we let the I dids of circumstance become who I am. When we do this, we collapse the I did into the I am in a way that's inherently self-destructive. This is where we get the I'm stupid from I did poorly on a math test, or the I'm ugly because I look different than my peers, or I'm weak or unpopular or a loser from I'm not in the popular crowd. I'm trash and my family is trash from the fact that my parents don't have enough money to buy me the nice school clothes. I'm a bad father, I didn't win custody, or I can't provide for my children. 
This becomes a constant and repeating inner dialogue. When you collapse the I did with the I am, it begins a cycle. And it begins to churn. And that voice inside your head that begins to focus on the I did is there constantly. It's constant and if somebody was whispering it in your ear day after day, hour after hour. And the dialogue is filled with guilt. But you know, guilt is not necessarily a bad thing, at least on one level. A feeling of guilt can show that a person has a moral compass. It can show you that you know that what you did was wrong or bad. That what you have done, that you're what I did is a problem. Guilt can motivate somebody to change and can motivate somebody to reach out. It can be the reason a child reaches out to an adult who has taken time to make it personal. But guilt, either unexpressed or reinforced when handled improperly by somebody in a position of trust, magnifies the collapsing of the I did into the I am and feeds a never-ending cycle of fear and guilt and shame and despair. And then just like it says on the shampoo bottle, we rinse and repeat. We rinse and repeat. And the cycle repeats because we're afraid to express our guilt and our fear in a way that's required to drive out shame and replace it with love. And then shame becomes the most destructive cycle of its own. Breen Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is a downward spiral. Shame is a chain reaction, a series of events. One thing begets the next. A person has a weakness. They have a, what I've done. He or she sees themselves as flawed. The flaw leads to guilt. The guilt leads to shame. The shame is compensated for with a narrative of pride and vanity, at least on the outside. And when pride and vanity fail, as they always will, despair takes over. And it's a cycle. And it repeats. And if you don't break that cycle, a person continues to spiral down. And there is only one thing that will break this cycle, and that's love. And until or unless we learn to stand up and make it personal and begin to love people, we will be unable to affect this cycle in individuals and in our society. The uninterrupted shame cycle leads to unhealthy self-esteem and self-destructive responses. The, I did it again, I can't do anything right. I forgot my work, I'm stupid. I watched porn again, I'm a vile person. I had sex with a boy, I'm a fill-in, whatever a young woman may say to herself. Religiosity fuels this same shame cycle. The last thing someone needs when they share the what I've done is religious rules, judgment, and condemnation. I shudder to think of all the kids who come to an adult at church and take the frightening step of telling them what I've done to be met with a lecture about repentance. Repentance is important. Repentance is a blessing. But sharing moral outrage and judgment sounds to a child in that circumstance like condemnation. You can't meet a child with rules and talks of penance instead of love. 
These are the exact opposite of what a young person needs in that situation. They need to repent, but the access to that is love. It's not a lecture. Imagine a young woman who comes to you with the what I've done of aborting an unborn child. She's in her shame cycle. She may even be at the point of despair. But she's had an adult in her life who made it personal with her. An adult who knows her name, knows what's important to her, knows her circumstance and context, where she lives. She opens up about her greatest vulnerability, her greatest fear of being found out, her most significant, what I've done. She may already be playing over and over the I am a murderer and God will never forget me what I've done narrative that's running through her head like the constant whisper. She's in the shame cycle. Fear feeding shame, shame feeding despair, despair feeding hopelessness. She wants to break the cycle. She comes to you. You have a choice. You have a choice. Are you going to love her or condemn her? Don't get me wrong. I am unabashedly pro-life. I just don't think we as Christians advance the cause of the unborn when we reinforce in young women that they are murderers and when we reinforce the lie that they are forever separate from God. We get nowhere when we feed the shame cycle that allows people to believe that they are unforgivable. You need to give people hope in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. When someone trusts us enough to tell us what they have done, we have to begin to help them separate the I am from the I did. You see, I did does not equal I am. Focus on the I am. Focus on the person, not on what they did. The key to working through a do you know what I did question is found in separating the self-defeating I did, therefore I am narrative from the empowering I am, I can be forgiven narrative. Breaking the downward spiral, stopping the chain reaction from shame to despair is found in defining the I am. It lies in replacing the self-defeating narrative of despair, the I am unforgivable and separate from God, with the Christ-centered and personally affirming I am of I am forgiven, I am loved, I am important, I matter. Any I am narrative inconsistent with grace, sacrifice, and the nature of Jesus Christ is self-defeating and false, and it will, fear, it will feed the despair cycle. The self-defeating I am constructs create two false narratives in a person. The first false narrative is, I'm afraid to be real and wonderful and powerful and gifted because others will find out who I really am. Others will find out the truth. Others will find out what I've done. A second narrative is they'll lie to themselves and to others and say, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what anybody else thinks. This can unfortunately lead to the I don't care what God thinks. Or worse, he isn't there so it doesn't matter. The shame cycle which causes someone to deny God as a defense to what they are feeling is a crime. And we can't let it happen. And we can intervene with love 
and in letting people know that the I am is, I am forgiven. So what do you do when you're presented with the question, do you know what I've done? When a child or even an adult entrusts you with a problem or a failure, they don't want to be identified by their sin. They want to know the answer to, do you think I'll be okay? Do you think I still have value? Do you think I can be forgiven? Do you think I matter? And when we say to them, God loves you, we better make sure we know what that looks like and feels like. And you better be able to show it. You need to be able to model the types of behavior that show love and show someone is worth forgiving. You know, a pastor's been uh, preaching from Luke 19, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And, you know, it, it's great when you have a kid because you can really make these stories fun, you know. And any story about a short dude in a tree, that's a good story. So I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it in the context of do you know what I've done? When Jesus entered, oh, and, and I'm reading from the message, by the way, and walked through Jericho, there was a man there, his name was Zacchaeus, the head tax man and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your home. Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree. I kind of get a picture of him kind of half falling out. Hardly believing his good luck. Delighted to take Jesus home with him. Everybody who saw the incident was indignant and grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? Zacchaeus just stood there. A little stunned, he stammered apologetically, Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. And Jesus said, Today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. So what does this story have to do with, do you know what I've done? At that meal, we know that there are at least three people present who knew what Zacchaeus did. We know that Zacchaeus knew what he's done. We knew that Jesus knew what he had done. But there was also Matthew. And Matthew knew what Zacchaeus had done. You see, Matthew used to be a tax collector too. It's great when you read the uh, second chapter of Mark and compare it to the 19th chapter of Luke because it tells the same story. The story of Zacchaeus and the story of Levi, who was later known as Matthew, well, they're the same story. Tax collectors in that time accumulated great wealth by cheating others, cheating on taxes, extorting money that was not owed under a threat of violence. They were worse than thieves, way worse than thieves, because... And the embezzlement that they engaged in wasn't condemned by authorities. It was supported by the authorities. They were the epitome of corrupt governmental officials using the system 
to rob others blind. And they did it for personal gain. Now, Matthew knew this. He knew what tax collectors were about. He knew what Zacchaeus was about. He knew what Zacchaeus had done. I wonder, did Matthew label Zacchaeus by his sin? I don't know the answer to that. I wonder whether Matthew felt shame in what had occurred because he looked back at his own life. It's not scriptural, but you know, one of the Bible study uh, tools I use is to try to put myself in the place and the context whenever I read scripture. And so I put myself in this context of, of Matthew walking into Zacchaeus' house. And at a time when most people lived in modest, you know, mud brick homes, I picture Zacchaeus' home as this big, ornate home, like a villa with ornate columns and beautiful mosaic floors with the sheer size and elegance of the home. And I see Matthew walking in. When most people had to toil to put together a meal if there were guests, and Mary and Martha is a perfect example of this. Well, at least Martha is. Uh, Zacchaeus didn't need to worry about it. He had servants and cooks and cleaners. Now, they were probably unaccustomed to having guests because Zacchaeus wasn't a real likable guy. No one much liked their boss. At a time when food could be scarce, I imagine Zacchaeus laid out this banquet. The finest wine, the best food, and plenty of it. And Matthew knows all about it. He knows where it came from because he'd done the same thing. He knows that the opulence and the servants and the food came from cheating and abusing the system and abusing the very people Jesus came to save. You think that he wanted to tell Zacchaeus the error of his ways? maybe admonishing him to turn away from sin? Do you think Matthew himself felt the shame of it all? I don't know. I don't know what Matthew did, but I know what Jesus did, and I know what Jesus didn't do. If you read the, the scripture, it doesn't say that Jesus lectured Zacchaeus, didn't quote scripture to him, didn't define sin, didn't tell him to turn away and repent. It doesn't say that Jesus discussed with him judgment or hell or the loss of his immortal soul. Instead, Jesus kept it personal. He enjoyed his meal with Zacchaeus. He did not inventory Zacchaeus' wrongs or speak of his sins. He did not point out Zacchaeus' ill-gotten gains. He did not demand that he repay the people from whom he had stolen. No, Jesus didn't do much of anything other than to be present for Zacchaeus and let him know that he mattered. Jesus was unconcerned with what others uh, might say or do, but mostly, Jesus didn't collapse what Zacchaeus did with who Zacchaeus was. He didn't collapse the I did with the I am. With every moment Jesus spent with Zacchaeus, he was telling him, no matter what you have done, you matter. No matter what you have done, you can be forgiven. With every bite, Jesus was saying to him, Yes, Zacchaeus, I love you enough to share a meal with you. With every drink of wine, Jesus was telling Zacchaeus, You're not alone or as different as you think. In fact, my buddy Matthew, he used to be just like you. By calling Zacchaeus out of a tree and letting him know he mattered, Jesus broke the cycle of shame and fear 
of being discovered. And it changed Zacchaeus' life. Jesus reaffirmed Zacchaeus's I am laid not in what he had done, but in God's great love for him. In the same way, the question, do you know what I have done, can only be answered when you are personal enough to show that you love someone. When you can replace the condemnation and the guilt and the shame with love. That's the access to answering, what have I done? That is the access to giving hope for forgiveness. Now, I'm going to ask Dave to come on up and uh, uh, give some illustrations and, and his take on, on this. And uh, I should probably confess at the outset that uh, I had Dave's notes and stole his good stuff. So, Dave? You did a much better job with them than I could have, bro. I'll just, you know, when we talk about this uh, story of Zacchaeus of the tree, up the tree, I kind of see it just a little different, too. I got a little different analogy with it. Uh, you ever felt like you've been up a tree? That you're up that tree, you're kind of hiding from people? Maybe you've done something yourself and you're not, not, not real proud of it, and you get around people and you kind of separate yourself. You're not really connected with those people, and you're not really being you when you're with that group. I remember... My grandmother used to get after me with a switch, and I'd run up the tree, and I'd stay there all day, and I knew sooner or later I had to come down that tree and take my medicine. So I know what it's like to be afraid of dealing with my guilt. And, you know, she knew I was guilty, and I knew I was guilty. I just had to come down and face it. And then when I faced it, it was all over. She forgave me and loved me and went on. But as a child, dealing with her guilt is tough. And, you know, the, the, Rob kind of touched on something there that kind of sparked something, but I've been teaching lately that there are three keys to lasting true happiness. And the first key is you've got to be authentic. You've got to be real. And anytime you're not real and you're not yourself, you're operating as someone else. And anytime we try to be someone else or, or fit in or or uh, blend in with people and we kind of lose our identity sometimes. So to be free, I gotta be me. But what does that mean? I gotta be the best me that I can be and that takes me to key number two is I've got to do the uncomfortable work to find me and be the better me. Because God made me in his image. He's infinite. I'm his child and I have infinite potential. So I gotta tap into that potential and who I truly am, what God, who God designed me to be, and be me. But many times people will put things on us or tell us, and we, we, we believe that we are somebody else because we try to fit in. We try to blend in. Our self-esteem oftentimes are, is affected by what other people tell us about us. And I'm, I'm coming back around to the shame, so just hang on just a minute. And the third step is we have to let go of the outcome. And what do I mean by that? Well, I have to be determined to pursue God and find out who I am in him and be all I can be in him and, and, and trust the process and quit trying to be what other people think I should be. If my parents think I should go to school to be 
an engineer like Jason because Jason's got a good career, but I'm not an engineer, and I go and do what my parents tell me to do, I'm probably not going to be happy with my career. I can survive, I can get by, but I'm not really living up to my full potential because maybe I'm somebody else. Now, as a child, this is important because everything they do at this age is to please the parents or to please those in authority. And if we get behavior based on how we feel about ourselves, oftentimes our behavior doesn't match up and we begin to feel less than who we are. So when we begin to deal with behaviors versus dealing with the person, we've got to be able to separate those two. And as a parent, sometimes that's tough. As a, as a leader of anybody, a group of people, because we're, we're responsible for these people, it makes it a little bit tougher about how they think and act and do. So I have to set, be able to separate the behaviors. Now, I just kind of want to give a, a little example of, uh, you know, I, I didn't always know this because raising my kids, I made a lot of mistakes. My son's 38 years old, and he survived me, thank gosh. My daughter come along about 14 years later, so I, I picked up some wisdom. I met Jesus Christ, and I began to be being changed. And I learned more lessons in life from my children than I've le learned anywhere. And my daughter one time got into some things that teenagers get into, and it wasn't good, but it wasn't the end of the world. And her behavior changed. And I noticed that something had changed in her. She's about 13, 14 years old, and her whole demeanor changed. And I thought, what's going on here? I thought, well, it's just hormones. She's going through this grown-up girl thing. But it was deeper than that. She began to avoid me. She began to avoid eye contact. She began to get confrontational with her mother. And then we found out what it was. And at first, we were angry. Like, how did this happen? But looking back on it, I wasn't really so much angry with her. I was angry with myself for allowing her to get to that place where she was exposed to what she was into. But at the time, I was angry at her. So we scolded her, disciplined her, punished her, whatever you want to call it. And we thought it was over. We set some boundaries and some perimeters. We thought it was over. But several months went by, and she began to decline in her grades, in her relationships. She became more isolated. And finally, one day, we sat down at the table because we had to have the, have the come to Jesus meeting about what was going on in her life. And she was real defiant. Now, where's this coming from? You know, what, why are you so defiant with me? I'm just trying to help you get your life back in order. And she broke. I mean, she wept. And for a long time, we just sat there. She wept and she emptied herself out. She said, I did a bad thing. And I feel bad. I feel dirty. And she says, and, I'm, and, I, and you think I'm perfect, Dad. You think I'm perfect. You think that I'm up here and you tell people how great I am, but I feel like I'm way down here. And that shame had been crushing her for a, couple, a few months. We disciplined and we, thought we did all the taking care of these things. We thought it was over, but we didn't deal. We dealt with the behavior, but we didn't deal with the person. Somehow we had dealt with the person the same way we dealt with the behavior, and she thought she was bad. And, of course, we all had that weeping moment, and it, and it hit me. I said, you know, I don't care what you do anytime, forever. I'm never going to stop loving you. 
And she took a deep breath and she began to get her life back in her. She said, you mean you're not mad at me? I said, I'm not happy about what you did, but I love you and I'll never, no matter what happens, I'm going to love you. And over the next few days, she began to come back to herself and her life came back into her because that shame was lifted off. All she needed to know was, did what I do separate me from my love from you? We as children, we as adults, we do things sometimes and we have some guilt. And if we don't deal with that guilt correctly, it begins to turn to shame. We begin to develop coping mechanisms to deal with it. We might avoid a certain group of people. We may not want to be around a certain person because if they find out what I did, they're not going to think well of me. So to live out those first three keys, I've got to learn how to deal with guilt. The best way to do it is have someone we trust that we can talk to. If we're going to be Jesus Christ to the world, I've got to be Jesus to that person in that time and be, make myself available. And as far as a child goes, we talked about those first three steps. Know my name. Know what matters to me. Know where I live. That's a process. That's a relationship. Oftentimes we want to correct people's behavior and help them because we, we just want to help. But if we don't get personal enough to connect with that person, they're not going to be vulnerable enough to open up to us and tell us what they've done so they can release that shame. And that's why relationships are so important. So not, in our, not only in our own families, but in our workplace, in our church, especially in our church and our families, we should be able to reassure everyone in the home that we love each other and we're available. And, and we can talk about this being confidential. And I'm not talking about advocating behavior that's harmful to the, the person or someone else. We have to deal with those things as they come up, but they have to be able to tell you what, where they're at. And that's so we can help them release that shame because God is never going to stop loving us, but we don't feel loved when we're walking in shame. Has anybody ever walked in shame before? Amen. It's a, it's a dark place, isn't it? But as soon as we release and open and let it go, we can start to feel the healing begin. But too many times we release it to the wrong people and it becomes gossip and then it just becomes a vicious cycle. So Christians among uh, people in the world should be the ones who are able to support each other in that. But oftentimes we'll, I've been places and I don't want to talk about uh, people in, uh, specifically, but I've been to places where they start a prayer, line, a prayer chain about someone and before it gets done, it's down 10 people down the line and it's a gossip and everybody knows what they did and everything else they've done. It's, it's not really about supporting that person. So relationships, small groups, one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships are important in the body of Christ. Amen. So that we can support each other because we all need it. Because when we do things, it's not that God's trying to uh, uh, beat us down. He just wants us to release it so he can heal us from it. We do, we do the damage to ourselves with our own guilt. And then the shame becomes a very destructive force that just like Rob says, a downward spiral that we don't even know who we are anymore. So key number one, be me, be you. Be the real you, be the higher you. Key number two, if, if you mess up, do the uncomfortable work to get back to the real you and admit your guilt and move on. Self-disclosure is powerful. You know what? I messed up. 
I'm not the only one's messed up, but I messed up. And don't make excuses for a mess up. Just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to be responsible. And key number three, let go of the expectations of other people about ourselves. I'm not, not saying that we shouldn't seek out wise counsel from people, but people are going to have an opinion about what you've done. You've got to let that go. You've got to block that out because they don't walk in your shoes. It's you and God. What does he think of you? Get that fixed with him and walk in that and walk in the power to overcome shame. Thank you. Good job, man. I don't need the mic. I'm wired up. Now you see why I stole his notes. If the praise and worship band would like to kind of start filtering up here, uh, we're getting close to the end. We need to respond to others in a way that gives hope for forgiveness and hope for a future free of shame. We must spend the time necessary to make it personal, to form the relationship necessary to listen and to speak hope. We are not responsible to know every answer, and you're not going to know every answer. But you, do know, but you do have to know that love is the way of responding. We must check our own motives when we choose to become involved in another's what have I done. Ask yourself, do I want this kid to change their behavior because I believe it's the right thing to do? Or do I want this kid to change their behavior because I love them? The problem with the first is that there's a risk of coming off as religious or condemning. Love is the only motive which is truly sufficient and truly powerful and truly authentic to break the shame cycle and to foster the healing relationship with Jesus. In truth, there are going to be some what have I done's that are beyond our pay grade. There are going to be things that we have no way, no experience with dealing with. Trust in God. Trust in the Holy Spirit. But also trust that God has put people in your life to help you with these issues. God calls people to be pastors and counselors, mental health care providers and physicians, mentors. Make use of God's resources. Get help, but when you get help, do it in a way that protects the confidentiality of the person you're dealing with. And look for danger signs. Look for extreme withdrawal or ideation of harming someone's self or others. Look for alcohol and drug use, somebody seeking to dull the pain. But mostly, don't be afraid to help. Don't let your uncertainty, don't let the fact that you think that it is beyond you prevent you from helping. Because there's no one in this room, no one, not one, that doesn't have the capacity to love and to love in a way that is an absolute defeater to shame. Love the best way you can. Love the best way you can. 
Love the best way you can through shame, through whatever they've done, and you'll have preached the gospel. In closing, everybody needs somebody who knows the answer to the question, do you know what I've done? When you know what I've done, you model love so that a person has the unshakable hope and knows the truth that they are worth forgiving and will be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Respond to someone in a way that replaces shame and unforgiveness with the love and hope of Jesus Christ.